We're in the middle of a series called Walking in the Dust. Um, if you haven't been here for the other talks, this whole idea is that we're, we want to follow Jesus as closely as, like, as we can. And we want to get hold of the idea of discipleship as it was in Jesus' day, because we can learn so much about what our own discipleship journey should look like, and we understand what Jesus' discipleship uh, disciples understood about discipleship. So we've been diving into Jewish culture and into Jewish understanding. We've been looking at the scriptures, hopefully with Jewish lenses on, um, to try and understand what Jesus meant and why Jesus did what he did. Because we want to be better disciples. And the idea of being covered in the dust is that we are working at Jesus' elbow. We're watching what Jesus is doing. We're, we're beginning to understand who Jesus is, how he functions, and what makes him tick. So that we can be covered in the same work that Jesus was covered in. Walking in the dust of our Rabbi Jesus. And so today we are going to look at Jesus' social life, because we want to be able to uh, follow Jesus in the way that he built a social set around him. So I've called this one, if this works, How to Build a Life-Enhancing Social Set, Jesus Style. So I want to see if I can set the context for you of the social life of Jesus. In the first century Jewish life, I was very surprised to learn just how many festivals and parties there were. That was the first thing that really struck me when I started to look into Jewish life and culture in the first century. Autumn was particularly festive. Now, I'm not sure about all the pronunciations, so I'm just going to say it as confidently as I can, and then you'll all think it's right, okay? <laughs> the first festival that I looked into was Rosh Hashanah, the, fe the festival of New Year, celebrated in September. This was uh, a, a new beginning festival, and it was something that most people celebrated across the country. Ten days later came Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This was centred in Jerusalem mainly, but families celebrated Yom Kippur wherever they were uh, around the country in their homes. Six days later, they celebrated Sukkoth, the Feast of the Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this one lasted for seven days. <laughs> now this, this was primarily like a rural thing, where kids particularly liked this one. Because it involved often going out to camp with your family in the fields, amongst the vineyards, for seven days, sitting around campfires, telling the stories of the adventures of the Israelite people. Identifying with the Israelites moving through the wilderness and recalling all the different ways that God had blessed the people of Israel. So the kids loved it. Basically like new wine, but in autumn. <laughs> Camping together in the fields. A few less tents involved, probably. That's just the autumn. There were festivals throughout the year. And then there were the weddings. The weddings were not just single-day affairs. They were big family and community affairs. And the community would accompany the young couple for several days, eating and drinking with them, doing ceremonial dances and singing love songs. Sounds all right, doesn't it? Yeah. Can you see why the wine ran out at one of the weddings? 
because it went over this extended period of time. It was like that film Monsoon Way, you know, where it's, it's huge. And these were the high points, especially in small backwater towns like Nazareth, when there could be these amazing celebrations. Jesus came from a large family, so he would have attended more than one of these big weddings. He loved them. And one time, when he was asked why he and his disciples didn't practice fasting and austerity like John's disciples did, he surprised them all by explaining that while they were with him, life should be a party like in the days of a wedding. One couldn't conceive of a wedding without eating and drinking and dancing. So how on earth could he and his disciples fast? I'm not sure that quite satisfied his critic. Um, but Jesus clearly enjoyed giving this response. When I'm around, it is just like being around the bridegroom. It's just like those days of celebration where we're just delighted at what is happening in this person's life, what's happening around them, and we have to celebrate what's going on around this couple. That's how it should be when you're around me, says Jesus. Amazing. He loves a party. And his critics accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. That's not true, but you get the picture. I think this is something that just makes me want to be Jewish. <laughs> I might convert. Um, party culture. But it, it's a, at least it, it's, the, uh, it, it's a great excuse, isn't it, for a party? It's in the Bible. It's legal. We can have as many parties as we like. It's what Jesus did. And if we're going to get used to being covered in the dust of our rabbi, then we need to get used to being at parties, right? And you can throw as many as you like. I love that. I enjoyed looking into this aspect of Jewish life. And, it, and it, it, I'm drawn to that social gathering and that, that rhythmical throughout the year, choosing to stop and pause and get together and to celebrate. Celebration is such an important part of the spiritual life. And if you take celebration out, you end up with something a little bit dead and austere. So we don't want that. So it was full of parties, but there were rules. Okay? This was not just a free-for-all. Who you ate and drank with and how you did it was very, very important in first century Jewish life. To sit at a table with someone was a very overt mark of respect and trust and friendship. One doesn't just eat with anyone. People eat with their own kind. Sharing the same table means belonging to the same group, therefore distinguished from all other groups. Does that make sense? It's actually true all over the world um, and in every culture, and you will have experienced it. Have you ever been to a, in a social setting and felt like you just don't belong? Have you ever felt that you just don't know the rules of this particular group or this particular occasion? And I think actually religious settings are particularly tricky with this. Religious ceremonies and meals are very good at putting in rules and ways of doing things that leave those who don't understand them feeling a little bit outside. 
I remember the first time that I went to stay at Buckfast Abbey with the Benedictine monks, whom I love, as you know. And I, I go there as often as I can. Um, but I remember the first time of uh, their, doing their ritual of going to Nome, I think it is, the, uh, the little service they have in the sanctuary just before lunchtime. And uh, there's a way of going in and kneeling before the altar and you go to a certain part and then you find your way to the exact bit of reading and liturgy for that day, which I couldn't work out my way through the book at that point. I didn't know where to go, so I just sort of talked along and tried to work out what, what I was doing. It looked, looked like I knew. Um, and there's a lot of people there that seemed to know what they were doing. Um, and, but they were all very kind. And then I followed the monks out towards the dining hall. And there's a particular way to walk in. And you stand behind your chair before sitting down. And then uh, uh, they say grace and the Lord's Prayer. And then everyone sits down together. And then there's a certain way that the food is served. And it's all in silence. And you're all looking at each other as well, so you can tell if somebody doesn't know what they're doing. Um, and I find that, found that really difficult, not talking to the person next to me, because that's part of my church tradition, is just talking to everyone. Um, and so I found sitting and eating together in silence a little bit difficult at first. I love it now. Now when I go there, it's, it, there's something really... There is a fellowship to it, actually, when you eat in silence, but you're aware of one another's presence. But I remember the first time I felt very odd doing it. And it, I kind of just felt a little bit like Whoopi Goldberg in a combo. <laughs> like I was probably putting my foot in it left, right and centre. But there you go. I remember, in fact, when I was a little boy, I remember actually it wasn't so funny. I grew up in an Anglican church, a really good one. I think they're doing some wonderful things now. Um, but at the time, this is going back for 25, 30 years, that's a bit scary. Um, when I was a little boy in this church, and I remember they, they did an all-age service, not, not so much like we do. It was uh, still a full preach, and it was communion. It was actually their longest service, because it was their communion service, and we as kids had to try desperately to behave ourselves through it, um, with my parents deeply embarrassed, with us crawling over and under and around the pews, scratching our names into them. <laughs> um, but I remember trying to behave. And then I remember when it came to communion time, a lot of my friends had gone through confirmation. And I had chosen not to go through confirmation because I wasn't quite sure what it was yet. And if I did know what it was, then I wasn't quite sure whether I wanted to do it or not. So I opted out, but a lot of my mates didn't. So when it came to communion, they would all line up to take communion. But I, I hadn't jumped through those hoops. So I, I was asked to go to the end of the line and to kneel for a blessing because I wasn't ready to take communion. This is not me having a go at the system. You know, this is just how I felt as a little boy. Okay. So maybe 8, 9, 10, um, 11. And so there I was, a strapping 10, 11 year old lad, just going, <laughs> lining up with a load of toddlers for a blessing. <laughs> and that, may, that is quite funny, but at the time, I just, everything about that setup just said, well, I'm not part of this. I, 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 don't, I don't fit with the rest of this body. I'm not sharing from the same bread and the same cup. I'm not, I've not come of age or I'm not, I've not yet fully joined the club. And so I was separate. And I always found that service really awkward. And after a while, I just stopped going. Uh, I just uh, would just, you know, go and muck about in the graveyard or something. It's, it's very easy to happen, um, to create that environment where somebody feels excluded 
And I think I've been on the other end of it sometimes. I spoke to somebody when we'd gone through, we were coming to the end of our A-levels. This always stuck with me, just lodged in my mind. And it came back as I was preparing this. I got to the end of my A-levels. Uh, somebody who I'd become good friends with was talking with me about what school was like before A-levels, up to the end of GCSE. And they said, you always used to hang out with the guys in K-Block. And K-Block was just the middle of the school. It was where all the food machines were. Uh, and there was a bunch of benches and things. And I was just going to meet my mates there at, at lunchtime. You were part of the K-Block set, they said. I never felt I could eat my lunch in K-Block. Because apparently that was where all the cool people were. And I didn't know that that's where all the cool people were. I don't think the cool people particularly knew that that's where all the cool people were because it wasn't particularly set out like that. But there was an unspoken thing that you had to be quite socially confident to go and socialise in that area. I think actually most of them were, were not too cool for school and they were welcoming of all comers. But there was a perception in the school that that's where you go if you're in the in crowd. And a lot of people just didn't feel confident enough to go and just hang out in that area at lunchtime. And this was just news to me. I had no idea that this was how people felt. Uh, and, I, and I did my best to say, well, it was never like that. But for that person, it was like that. Clearly, we exuded something which made them feel we can't compete and we can't eat with you. Well, in Jesus' day, it was exclusivity on steroids. Listen to this. The Qumran community... These were a bunch of people who lived out in the desert. It's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. You remember that? Well, meals were the center of community life. No one from outside the community could take part. The members themselves went through rigorous purification rites before sitting at the table. The meal then followed a detailed ritual which established the place of each person in the hierarchical structure of the community. That's pretty tight. The radical Pharisaic groups washed their hands symbolically before sitting down. The ritually impure were absolutely excluded. The organisers had to ensure that the tithe had been paid on all the food that was going to be served. No matter what it was, a tenth was always taken aside, given to the temple. These rules had to be, exert, had to be served to exclude outsiders, consolidate group identity, and demonstrate their vision of the true Israel. Hard lines had to be drawn. It was as clear as being deemed clean or unclean. Now let's come back to the Jewish rabbis. Remember, the supreme task of a Jewish rabbi was to teach their interpretation of the law and the lifestyle that goes along with it, and to demonstrate what it is to live as the true Israel. And their disciples are supposed to follow them meticulously in order to learn how to live the values of that rabbi. That's what it means to take on the yoke of the rabbi, in order that they might learn to be just like him, covered in the dust of their rabbi. So where are they going to display their vision of God's law and lifestyle most clearly? Around the table in that culture. 
How a rabbi approaches table fellowship will explain nearly everything you need to know about who that rabbi is and what that rabbi thinks is important. Now hold that thought and we're going to turn to Luke chapter 5. Okay, Luke chapter 5 is a great chapter. It starts with the first disciples being called in the first few verses. And of course, we, we looked at that on the first session of this series. And we talked about what it meant for them to leave their nets and follow Jesus. That this, this rabbi had invited them to be disciples. Uh, and there was a, a massive moment for them. They were so excited. They were about to undergo a complete change in their culture. Um, in their place in society, they were going to be celebrated as these disciples of this eminent rabbi. So that happens first. And then you've got some brilliant things that happen. Uh, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And that had never been seen before. And then we have that amazing story of the four people bringing a paralyzed man to Jesus and then breaking a hole through the roof and lowering him down to Jesus' feet and Jesus claiming to be able to forgive sins. And then this man gets up and walks out in front of them all healed. So the, Peter, James, John, Andrew, their first few weeks as disciples of Jesus has been a pretty amazing experience thus far. And then we pick up the story in verse 25, immediately as, as everybody watched, this man who had been uh, paralyzed jumped up, picked up his mat and went home, praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe. And they praised God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. Verse 27, later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honour. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. Well, can you see just how shocking that is? You know, if you're Peter or James or John, you, you've just been called to follow. You're eager to learn the ways of your rabbi. You're loving this new position in your society. And then Jesus goes to a tax collector and says the same thing to him as he's just said to them, follow me, you can be my disciple. Now tax collectors were rough diamonds. They were people who had opted out of being celebrated people in Jewish culture. They were not claiming to be part of the covenant people of God. They were These particular tax collectors were people that essentially ran tolls on um, trade routes. So they would exact taxes on people trying to move from A to B. And they were pretty hard characters and they often would take more than they should have taken. They weren't, the, these weren't Roman tax collectors, these were Jewish tax collectors. 
claiming temple tax and other taxes that the local people would have to pay. And so these were hated. They, they were worse than traffic wardens. And you've got to love the traffic wardens, by the way. You know, these were people who, who people just couldn't stand. When, when they, they were constantly penalising people for, in, in unjust ways. You know, they were really disliked in that community. And they were also immoral. They would steal from people. And because they were all excluded from the in-crowd of the Jewish people in that way, they often stuck together as groups. They, they would form their own society. And I can only imagine that the party that Jesus went to on that day when Levi threw the party would have been a little bit spicy. The language would have been a bit colourful. <coughs> the kind of conversation that was around that table would have been very different to that which was shared in a Pharisee's home. Remember what it means to eat together in Jewish culture. It's about saying what kind of people you're part of. So Peter and James and John and Andrew, <coughs> what, this whole perception of who they were now as followers of Jesus would have been shaken up a bit, right? Because they're no longer able to be seen as these celebrated people who are producing a celebrated community and an in-crowd around Jesus. Now Jesus is drawing in all these other people into his close social network. Interestingly, uh, the name Levi means joined in harmony. And that, it's almost like the Lord had the plan for this man to be joined in harmony to Jesus for a purpose. And he's also called Matthew. That's his other, it's another name that he's called, which means gift of Yahweh. I love that. You can kind of see how the Lord is weaving his life into the story of the Gospels. Jesus, right from the outset, is socially outrageous. The moment he chose Levi to be his disciple, and he chose to sit down and eat with Levi and his friends, he did something which was outrageous in that community. He doesn't just disregard the rules. He seems to go out of his way to challenge them. Jesus' disciples watch as Jesus openly sets out to be, uh, what he believes God is like and who his kind of people are. He merrily sits down to eat with the people who are considered to be the f furthest from favour with God. And what's worse, he seems to enjoy their company. He doesn't seem to require any of them to change before he brings them into this level of intimacy. No one is deemed unpure. No one washes their hands beforehand. There's no need for separate tables. Everyone is honoured and nobody feels excluded. And yet they're not even on their best behaviour. Jesus trusts a huge amount to the grace of God and the unseen working of the Holy Spirit. He seems to offer forgiveness to these people wrapped in friendship. 
Really interesting. When you go through the Gospels and you look at how many times Jesus actually talks about forgiving somebody's sin, he only does it twice. There's only the time when the man is lowered down through the roof and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And then he says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to get up, pick up your mat and go home? He says, so that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat and go. And the man gets up. That's the one time. The other time is when the woman who was caught in adultery gets thrown at his feet and they're about to stone her. And then when everybody has dropped their stones, because he has placed himself in between this woman and the mob and said, he who is without sin cast a first stone and they all drop their stones and leave. Then he turns to them, her and says, tell me who condemns you? And she said, nobody. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And he absolves her sin. Those are the only two times that he actually openly talks like that in the Gospels. The rest of the time, he is actively embodying what it means to forgive people by extending outrageous friendship to people who are not yet deemed to be clean and sinless and pure. He's doing it as a lifestyle, 24-7. He's modelling it all the time. He just loves them, genuinely and sits down to table fellowship and enjoys them and their stories. Loves hearing about what their life has, all, has been like and all about. And he doesn't seem to cast a judgmental eye in their direction at all. That was groundbreaking. There wouldn't have been a single rabbi around at that time that was even close to that. He was completely countercultural, And he would openly share his life with them. Now, here's an interesting thing. The Lord's Prayer. Let's see if this works. Jesus brings a taste of the social life of heaven to earth whenever he sits down at a table with people. There are several scholars who believe that the, the, though the Gospels only record the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in a few places, it follows the form of the prayers said at Jewish meals. The honouring of God's name, the give us this day our daily bread, the request for God to forgive sins, it's common table prayer type language. So I can just imagine Jesus sitting in the company of all these people who considered themselves to be outcast, out of the celebrated social set of Israel, sitting around a table and Jesus beginning, our Father. And just by saying our Father, it's like gathering the whole community that's in that room into a sense of belonging under one God and Father. Our Father, like a hen gathering its chicks under its wings, bringing them in. Hallowed be your name. Maybe there was something in the way that Jesus said, hallowed be your name, that just lit a little spark of faith in people that maybe had not thought of God as being particularly wonderful or particularly worth celebrating because they've been an outsider to this point. There's something in the way Jesus says it. Hallowed, God, you are wonderful. Hallowed be your name. Faith begins to rise. May your kingdom come. This is the big cry of Jesus' heart. May your kingdom come. Just like this. All of us here together. Prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, whoever, anybody, everybody, politicians, whoever, fishermen, Tax collectors, said that already. All together. May your kingdom come just like this.
just like it is around this table. May your will be done, just like this, how it is around the table. Give us all today our daily bread and forgive us where we have sinned. And lead us, deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation. This is Jesus' heart. And by doing that, he would be sharing the cry of his heart with the people around the table and bringing them into fellowship with God. I love that idea. As it is in heaven. Heaven's going to be a surprise to some, I think. I really do. Jesus says, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. He told us a story to show us what heaven's going to be like. Let's read it in Luke 14. Jesus, in Luke 14, is at a party again. Luke 14, verse 1. On the Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner at the home of, of a leader of the Pharisees. And the people were watching him closely. So we know that there are people, that's a crowd, uh, a number of people, and we know that he's at a dinner. He's, he's sitting at a table again with a bunch of people. So this is the context for when, where Jesus is saying this. And at some point, I think it's... Uh, yeah, let's go from verse 12. Jesus turned to his host and he said, When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives and rich neighbours, for they will invite you back and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will re reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. You kind of get a sense that this man doesn't know what he's just said. So Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I now have a wife, so I can't come. <laughs> That's what it says in the NLT, all right? <laughs> the servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, There is still room for more. So his master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come, so that my house will be full. That's a challenging story, isn't it? Jesus is excited about what is going to come. And he wants his house to be absolutely full of people. He is preparing the greatest banquet. He's like he's saying, I want my house to be full of people who are surprised but glad to be there. Not a house full of people who have got better things to do and can't be bothered to come. 
Interesting. Luke 14.23 is such a key to fullness of joy and life in abundance. To go out and to compel people to come in so that God's house can be full. Full of people who would never have imagined that they would have been invited to such a banquet. Jesus' hearers would have been sat listening to this thinking, if I was invited, I'd go, definitely. I never get invited to stuff like that. He was talking to a crowd that would very rarely get invited to things. And he was talking to some of the people in his crowd in the home of this Pharisee also would have felt that they were always invited, but there was a sting in the tail of this story as well. I remember when I was working in South East London for Ichthus Christian Fellowship. It was at a time when Ichthus was struggling a little bit. Um, it had just gone through quite a big disruption in Ichthus and a lot of people had uh, split off and um, formed a different network of churches and it was, it was quite difficult. And where I was working in Forest Hill, it was like the epicentre of this split and it was quite hard. I, I went to work with them, first time I went to work with them was, was the year immediately following this and the, the church had depleted quite a lot. Um, but they were still full of some wonderful people there. Um, and I remember I was part of a team that was, was reaching out into the local area and uh, we, we just said, well, you know, never mind. We're just going to build up this church. We're just going to fill it full of some, a load of new people. We're going to go out there. We're going to share the gospel and bring people in. And so we did that. Uh, we went out sharing all over the area about Jesus Christ and inviting people to church. It was an amazing time. And as part of that, we set up a, a, an initial discipleship course. I think it was a journeys course. Have you ever done journeys? It, was, it's, it hasn't been around for a little while. It was a New Zealand-based course, I think. But we decided we were going to do a journeys course. And we went out and invited loads of people who we'd made as really good contacts all around the area. And we thought we were going to have a pretty packed course. Well, I think we thought we were going to have a good sort of 20 or 30 people. So we kind of set up this big course in the prayer house. Because um, a lot of people said, yeah, yeah, I'll come. If I get home from work quick enough, I'll come. And, and we prepared... Uh, I don't think we did like massive catering, but we bought some seriously nice biscuits. Um, and uh, we got all organised for this course because we were going to take people on a journey to discover something about Jesus Christ. And the big day came and we'd set up for it and we'd been working on it all day and we'd made signs out on the road to say this is where it is. And we, you know, texted everybody and stuff. And when the evening came, the first evening, two people arrived. And the first one was a guy who I didn't think was going to come, a guy called Mick, I'm sure I've told you about before, a guy called Mick Rossi. Uh, he was uh, in Dartmoor for murder. Uh, <laughs> I first met him in Valentine Court. Um, it, he, his, his front door had like a big three-headed dog on the front door. I was a bit nervous to knock on the door, but when I met him, he came out and said, all right, you know, he's massive, bloke, bold head. He was like, what's your problem? Just telling you about Jesus. Uh, and we had a great chat with him. He welcomed us in, made us a cup of tea with his fingers. That wasn't nice. Um, he had very... You could ha withstand the heat. I don't know. Um, anyway, got, got to know Mick really well. And I, actually, he was so key. He knew everybody on the estate. And if Mick says we were kosher, then we were kosher. It was all right. And people would talk to us. So anyway, Mick came along 
he doesn't normally come to stuff like that, but he came along because he, out of respect for me, I think he was going to look after me in case anything kicked off. Uh, but he also brought his good friend, Karen. Now, Karen was, had been a heroin addict for many, many years, uh, and she was on methadone at the time, but she, she was at a really low ebb, and she, she was, her health was so poor, um, but she was able just about to get out and about, and she was really open and really interested in what we had to say. So I just had Mick and Karen come to this first evening. And all the people that I thought were going to race home from work in the city and come didn't come, but Mick and Karen did. And I remember the first evening just feeling really flat, feeling like, Lord, is this it? Is this all the people that are going to come to our course? You know, we've got a church to fill here, and we just got Mick and Karen, and I didn't think they were ever going to come to church anyway. So we started doing this course, um, and a number of the other people who I was working with on team kind of lost heart for it. And it ended up just Mary and I running this course. We just, Mary and I, Mick and Karen, in the front room of Ichthus House in Forest Hill. And actually we had an amazing time with these two. Um, we, we decided to uh, go for more for kind of digestives than ginger nuts, because I think they only had about two teeth between them. Uh, and, uh, and we made the tea exactly as Mick liked it. So we, he kept coming. Um, but we just had such a laugh, and every time I switched the DVD up, I remember this. There's just been a brilliant presentation of the gospel. I just reached out and said, okay guys, what did you think? Is there anything that struck you there? Um, every single time, without fail, Mick would say, yeah, I know about all that aid, but what's it all about? <laughs> without fail, what's it all about? I, said, I got a bit cross about this after a while, but then I suddenly realised, I think he just wanted me to tell him again, this is the fact that God loves you. I think that's what he wanted to hear. And actually, if that's all he took from it, then he, he took all he needed, actually. Yeah, what's it all about? Um, it, it was amazing. And about week four, week five, on the way through this course, I started really looking forward to this Wednesday night when I was going to be meeting with Mick and Karen. And there was this tremendous sense that Jesus was in it. And there was, it was so random and it was so, it was just so normal. But there was something of the sweetness of Jesus. And throughout that time, I felt extremely close to God. And a, a deep sense of contentment, like this is what I'm born for. This is, if I die doing this, it will be enough. There was a peace and a joy about running that course. And do you know what the funny thing was? I think in a way it dawned on me after a while that we had decided to run this course in order to sort out the issues in Ichthus Forest Hill. But God had decided to use these two people to sort out the issues in me. Because I had a complete change of heart about what I was about and about what, what success looked like in the kingdom and about the kind of people that, that God takes great delight in. Amazing. It was an unexpected taste of heaven. Let's read that verse again. Luke 14, 23. His master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that my house will be full. Wonderful. But then it goes on. Verse 24. For none of those I first invited 
will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Wow. That's pretty strong. The people that Jesus is referring to are those who are too busy enhancing their own lifestyles to enter into the celebration of God's ragamuffin kingdom. Too busy. Maybe later. I've got other things I want to do. Jesus said they will never taste of the joy that I have prepared. Mary and I have not just enjoyed the company of a lot of different people in London, we have enjoyed the company of a lot of different people here too, from very different backgrounds. It's a very important part of our family philosophy, and it's a constant source of amusement, the breadth of our friendships, and it makes for quite funny social gatherings sometimes when you mix everybody up. It's always good. Some of our friends are pretty well adjusted and successful and uh, have high capacities. Some of our friends are crazy, literally some of them. <laughs> what I haven't said yet is that there is a powerful, beautiful set making culture here in Totnes that wasn't really present in the same way in the area of London that we were working in. Many people who prize lifestyle, adventure, strong personality, beauty and success are too busy to be part of the ragamuffin kingdom of Jesus Christ. Many who unconsciously develop social scenes that massage the ego and find themselves too busy with the task of enhancing their lifestyles to accept Jesus' invitation to come and experience the joy of life in his kingdom and to come around his table with one, anyone and everyone. And to hold people as valuable, regardless of their background, their education, their social status. But Jesus, our rabbi, is clear. You can't do both. You can't build a social set that will massage your ego and be part of the social set that Jesus is trying to create. Of people with low ego who don't seek to create a cool culture where other people can't run hard enough to keep up. But who, where everybody feels accepted and loved for who they are. You will either be subconsciously seeking a place in a social in-crowd or you will counter-culturally and consciously seek to find more humble friends, people who will not try to impress you or massage your ego. So, this is what Jesus did. It would have been a shock to his first disciples. It would have required a massive paradigm shift for them. But after three years of watching Jesus humbly befriending one and all, allowing both politicians to wake him in the night and prostitutes to wash his feet, they got it. And they began to build a church that welcomed all comers and had an unashamed affection for the last and the least. 
That's the kind of church I want to be part of, especially in Totnes. And I want to be honest with you. If, I don't see this hardly ever, but if someone comes in to this fellowship with a sense of, of super coolness and starts to draw other people around to, to be cool or flirtatious or impressive, I've got this hypersensitivity to it. I, I, it sickens me. I, I, find it, I find it really, really difficult because it cuts so much against the grain of the Jesus that I follow. If anyone sets, begins to set the atmosphere where everybody else has got to try and run hard to keep up or to be something that they're not, or you see people maybe with less confidence backing away, I, I, I'm so picking up on it. I, I just spot it a mile off and, and, and I find it really difficult. I, I never quite know what to do with it because it's subtle and it's, it's like a spirit that enters a room. But whenever the ego begins to grow, I find it really difficult because it's just not what I believe that we need to be about. And there's enough of it going on in this town. We want to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. We want to make sure that all of our gatherings are 100% inclusive. We want to keep shaking off religious and cultural expectations in favour of the vision that Jesus had. I want to live in the same joy and intimacy with Jesus as Mary and I first encountered in South East London. That we might bless some lives around us and find that in return our lives are strangely blessed. That's how to build a life-enhancing set, Jesus style.